This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Can you kind of describe the situation inside Venezuela today? It's a failed state. That's that's the best way to put it. It's a place where nothing functions, and what little functions does so through corruption. It's a place where almost everything you can point to is failing. That means the banking system, employment, pollution, the shortage of drinking water, energy, security, public security, almost everything you can point to. Venezuela is an example of the collapse of that. Juan Guaido is recent phenomenon in politics in Venezuela, and a welcome one. Here's an individual that's the opposite of a lot of other Venezuelan figures. He's not a tired figure. He represents a youthful outlook. And so what we have here is a surprise. I don't think anyone expected this sort of thing. He's come through strong, and he's gotten the support of, I guess it's 54 countries now, and that's not an insignificant thing. My fear is that once Maduro is gone, the international community will say, we won, it's time to move on, and that there is not a focus on the day after. If your measure of success is Maduro's departure, that alone doesn't necessarily mean that there'll be a significant change in the regime or even how business is conducted in Venezuela. It might not even mean anything in terms of moving the needle on redemocratization. And quite frankly, Maduro is a figure who, uh, as I said earlier, is not an individual who's particularly a strong leader or has a strong following. He simply represents the party. So someone else could step in and be worse than Maduro. Juan Cruz most recently served as the senior director of the Western Hemisphere at the National Security Council, a position during which he played a key role in designing U.S. policy toward Venezuela. Juan spent most of his career in various government assignments related to Latin America. I had a chance to sit down with Juan to discuss the crisis that has unfolded in Venezuela and what it means. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Juan, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show, and most importantly, it's great to see you again. Thank you, Michael. Good morning. I remember having the best mojito of my life with you in a Bogota restaurant. I don't know, probably six or seven years ago. It was served in a bowl. 
Um, but I don't think we can talk about the rest of the story. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, Andres, D.C. I remember that place, yeah. A large gourd. It was a large gourd. Yes, yes, yes. So, Juan, you've retired from government. Yes, sir. You spent the last part of your career at the National Security Council in the early days of the Trump administration. How did you end up at the NSC? Uh, Fortuitously. It was the front office of the State Department was looking for somebody, and uh, as was the White House, the predecessor in the position uh, had departed after a, a very brief time there, less than a month, and I had been interviewed previously for the job. General McMaster had heard of me. I thought I was going in for uh, for an interview, and instead he, he pitched me, and I ended up there uh, in, in less than 30 days. He's a great guy, isn't he? Yeah, I, I, I respect him a lot. General McMaster didn't know me from Adam. Gave me great opportunity, and, and in his style, he recognizes talent and, and brings it in and lets it flourish. Let's dig into Venezuela, which is the issue that I really want to talk to you about. Venezuela was not a high priority for the Obama administration. Yes. I was there, I know. But it became one for the Trump administration. Why did that happen? How did that happen? How did it go from fairly low priority to high priority? You know, that's an interesting question. I would say that we almost went almost two decades of uneven tension to Venezuela, even before the Obama administration. But I have no idea why President Trump chose Venezuela as an issue. It's authentic. It comes from him. It was not something that was briefed or coached to him by a member of his foreign policy staff. It's something he believed in. There are some issues like that 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 he absolutely is tied to and is authentic. Immigration, drugs and Venezuela. Is it the humanitarian piece, do you think? I was, you know, was struck when Syrian President Assad used sarin gas and the president was so um, taken with the pictures of the dead children. If it was the humanitarian piece in Venezuela or if somebody had talked to him about it, it's just, just, it's just interesting to me that it went, you know, it almost came out of nowhere. I, I don't want to be trite, but he did know Venezuela from before through uh, his connections to the Miss Universe pageantry and Venezuela, of course, being a producer of Miss Universes and takes pride in in the pageantry. And so he had been there before and had a connection through that. Maybe he saw the slow deterioration of the conditions in Venezuela. So Juan, how would you describe U.S. interests in Venezuela? Why should Americans care? Is this just a humanitarian issue, or is this a national security issue as well? And I'll tell you, I was at a dinner last night where we were talking about Venezuela, and one of the people there said, and I disagree with this, so I'm interested to know what you're going to say, that this is not a national security issue, that this is only a humanitarian issue. What's your sense? Well, I'd say there's uh, what I call the trifecta of interest in in Venezuela by the United States. First, it it very much is a human rights issue. It goes to the heart of what we believe in. And these issues of human rights violations or the violation of democracy is what drives a lot of the U.S. interests. And then finally, it is a national security issue. It's a national security issue from the point of view of stability in the region and uh, inviting those actors from outside of the region who have been involved in issues in Venezuela for a long time, Russia, China, Iran, come to mind. And so it's very much of interest to us. As a student of democracy, I'd point out that when I started in the region in the 80s, most of the countries were dictatorships, mostly right-wing dictatorships, except tellingly Venezuela. Venezuela was a very stable democracy, and it dedicated itself for a 
better part of a decade or two to help other countries reach democracy. So to see Venezuela uh, slip back into uh, dictatorship is particularly hurtful. Can you kind of describe the situation inside Venezuela today? Absolutely. It's a failed state. That's that's the best way to put it. It's a place where nothing functions. And what little functions does so through corruption. It's a place where almost everything you can point to is failing. That means the banking system, employment, pollution. If you want to talk about something that most people haven't focused on, but a tremendous environmental effects of what's taking place in Venezuela, the shortage of drinking water, uh, of course, uh, energy, security, public security, almost everything you can point to, Venezuela is an example of the collapse of that. One of the things you hear about is a shortage of medicine and the impact that that has as well. What about refugees? Talk about refugees a little bit. I'm really pained to see the uh, number of Venezuelans that have left over a period of time, not only the recent migration issue or, uh, of Venezuelans, but it actually predates, predates that about four years back. We have a little over 4 million Venezuelans living outside of Venezuela as a result of that initial movement. And in Colombia in particular, we have almost uh, 1.8 million Venezuelans in in Colombia. If you want to talk about what kind of stress that places on a neighboring country, just think that's about three times the population of Washington, D.C. And that's not to speak of the uh, populations of the Venezuelans in Panama and, of course, Brazil and Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Argentina primarily, and those who departed earlier to places like Italy and and Spain, Portugal. It's those refugees in the immediate neighborhood that creates risks to those other countries, right? And And a stress on their ability to respond. Imagine if you're a Colombia, it's already tough for you to provide uh, education and medical services to your own population just coming out of 60-year civil war and then have to extend that even more to an additional 1.8 million people. So, Juan, let's keep the discussion going on the current situation. Why do you think Maduro has survived, you know, when you have an economy that's cratered, people fleeing the country by the millions, as you noted, and, and what seems like a vast majority of the country actually despising him? Why has he been able to hang on? I think that's the definition of a of a dictatorship there through an abuse of power and the use of might to, to stay in in power and of course using the instruments of government to suppress democratic expression interestingly enough maduro comes to power tapped by his predecessor uh, hugo chavez to uh, replace him handpicked successor here's an individual who did not have the grassroots support for a position like that and and certainly not within the leadership of chavismo So it's a little bit of an aberration, and his inner circle is quite small and tight. And so part of the reason he's remained in power is because others permit him to remain in power. He's got a number of rivals, and there's this very delicate balance that allows um, an individual like Maduro to to stay in there. And uh, and let's not forget, of course, that Maduro has a a very close relationship to the Cuban uh, government. That allows him, of course, instant area of support and legitimacy that substitutes the lack of support within um, his own party. How much does that Cuban support matter to him? How important is that? I think it's invaluable to him. It's not, it's just not giving him advice. He takes advice from uh, the Cubans and a little bit of a security blanket. And of course, they're critical members of his security team, bodyguard force and palace security. If it weren't for the Cubans, I think uh, Maduro would be uh, further weakened 
And it's not just him. It's him and his inner circle have been born of Cuban influence. Maduro studied in uh, Cuba, ideological studies, if you will. And he does have a base of support. Curious because while he is very tight with the Cubans, he's not especially close to Raul Castro. I don't I don't think that personally they like each other. But there's a, you know, as you know, there's a big split in Cuba, right? He's more aligned with the further hardliners, correct? That's right, old school. What about the Russians? What role do the Russians play? How important? You know, it's a curious role that the Russians play in Venezuela. It, there is no... There are no historical ties between Venezuela and Russia. This is a relatively recent phenomenon invited through Chavez's desire to, to have a counterbalance to the U.S. influence. So he invites the Russians. He invites the, the use and the purchase of Russian military equipment, communications equipment, doctrine, and something that is really a, a foreign um, import into Venezuela. He does that also as a way to provide some regional balance, and the Russians love it. Right. The Russians come in and they get to put their thumb in the eye of the United States, a little bit of a counterbalance to the U.S.'s interests and involvement in issues like like the Crimea, for example, or even Syria. Well, I want to ask you about um, Juan Guaido, the opposition leader. What can you tell us about him and his movement and where that stands today? Juan Guaido is recent phenomenon in politics in Venezuela, and a welcome one. Here's an individual that's the opposite of a lot of other Venezuelan figures. He's not a tired figure. He represents a youthful outlook. He, uh, I would say that even uh, socioeconomically and culturally, he reflects more of the Venezuelan, the typical Venezuelan, and he's got a, gr- a great story behind him. So he, he's selected to be the president of the National Assembly, And he shows up and all of a sudden he takes all that energy, youth, enthusiasm and commitment and he turns it into something. And between that and the uh, support of the other opposition parties, he's able to to really change things around. We were in in a low point in trying to encourage the regime to change its ways, its behavior and to move towards democracy. And he he um, rather quickly moved in there got the support of the other parties, became a tremendous natural leader, and galvanized the country. And so what we have here is a surprise. I don't think anyone expected this sort of thing. He's come through strong, and he's gotten the support of, I guess it's 54 countries now, and that's not an insignificant thing. So, Juan, we we seem to be stuck at the moment. The the kind of picture I have is that both Maduro and, and Guaido are sort of hanging by their fingernails. How does this standoff end, and what role do you think the U.S. should be playing? Well, there, there are few options, and even fewer options after the, the failed, let's call it, coup attempt of 30 April. I think most everyone was a loser as a result of that event. And now we have these um, incipient talks promoted by Norway taking place in Barbados, I think that there are only a, a few ways out. It's got to be either a negotiated way out, and I don't, I don't think conditions are, are ready for something like that. The regime has become quite good at using talks and mediation and negotiation to simply kick the can down the road to perpetuate themselves in power. And in the uh, case of the opposition, uh, quite frankly, they've, uh, in these negotiations, they've gotten the short end of the stick time and time again. So the regime is pretty practiced at uh, abusing the issue of negotiation. Now, thankfully, Norwegians have a long, long experience in this. 
but I don't think the conditions are there yet. You've got to provide the right confidence-building measures so that you know that this time the regime really is serious and will abide by negotiations, things they haven't proven to do in the past, and, and that the Norwegians can nudge them in the right direction. So one option is negotiations. The second, of course, is something that is unstated, uh, largely, which is the international community probably would prefer uh, some sort of coup, something like the failed 30 April event, something that allows faction of the military to, in a bloodless effort, push away the toughest aspects of the regime and create a transitional government where everyone gets to sit at the table and move the country back into democracy. The problem is that 30 April, the fact that it's a failed event probably makes that less likely. And what makes it more likely is probably a palace coup. The only winners on 30 April are the military, and they've probably now are in a position to stage a, a coup where they could uh, remain in power without inviting important members of the opposition or really only the ones that, that they would like to co-opt. And then thirdly, something that's had a lot less talk lately and, and is a topic for a lot of division is military option. Yeah. And a military option, whether multinational or, or largely by the U.S., is a, is a serious matter. I think that most people who react poorly to that are pr- probably haven't properly defined what military option is. If you think a military option is a full-scale invasion, then I can understand why you would be against it. If you thought a military option could be something other than that, nuanced options, maybe even nonviolent ones, non-kinetic, then I think that you could probably convince people that some sort of military, quote, military option is an option. It's that latter type that the Trump administration means when it says all options are on the table? I, I think the president likes to believe that if you're the United States and you have a whole menu of options, why would you voluntarily discard them? So for the, the president, when he says that all options are on the table, it's not a rhetorical claim. I think that he really believes that these are instruments that could be applied under the right conditions. And I, I don't think that he'd be in favor of a full-scale uh, invasion. If you know uh, the president, he's allergic to military adventurism overseas. But however, in Venezuela, that's not the case. And, but, but it's not totally the, uh, an opposite position, a contrary position. It's actually one that's a little bit modified. Yes, I think it's something that might even be something non-kinetic, but still involving the Is U.S. Is there military. a regional military option, a Colombia, Brazil kind of thing, or, or not? It, you know, um, there are a number of countries now that, have, that are stakeholders, right? They have skin in the game. And so for the U.S. to look for an option that excluded allies would be, would be even tougher. So, uh, and in the past, both the Brazilian and Colombian governments have spoken about possible participation. Long since, however, they've discarded that. Now, the question to ask yourself is whether that's a position you hold publicly or a position you continue to hold behind closed doors. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Juan Cruz. Good morning to you and welcome to CBS This Morning. Understanding the world. We're going to begin with breaking news. Begins with the right questions. Have police discovered a motive? Does the president have a red line here? What are they doing to prevent this from happening again? Join Gail King, Anthony Mason, and Tony DeCopel on CBS This Morning. We know a little more this morning. This is a major development. This is a very serious situation. More news every morning on the show everyone is talking about. We have much more news ahead for you. CBS This Morning. So, Juan, I know that one of the things that you care deeply about is the day after. The day after Maduro falls and a new transitional government is in place. 
Why are you so concerned about that? Why are you so focused on that? I'm very optimistic on Venezuela. I, I, I would say that right off the bat. And to talk about day after scenarios really is to talk about more positive things. Regardless of how we reached uh, a day after, we are in a day after scenario. So something good happened. And now we're about rebuilding uh, the country. And uh, the challenges are huge. They're enormous. I think a lot more challenging than most people even um, assume. You have a failed state where most of anything that used to function is broken, outdated, non-functional, and uh, not economically viable. So the opportunities are endless, which I think to create a leapfrog effect, for example, just to pick something critical to the rebuilding of Venezuela, which is its energy and electric infrastructure, to do something like that, we could leapfrog into technology that could help Venezuela not restore what it had, but actually create a technology that would make it among the most modern in Latin America. But quite honestly, I end up gravitating to uh, my strengths, the issue of security, and the security threats on Venezuela are, are a long list and would probably get longer in a day after scenario because you'd have a dissident military, dissident Chavistas and others anxious to make any transitional government fail and to step, step in instead of them. And in that list of security um, matters, I think, are issues that we could quickly get to and resolve. These include everything from counter-narcotics, FARC dissidents, prison gangs known as pranes in the, in the country, thuggery in the form of motorcycle gangs that have been deputized by the Venezuelan regime to do its dirty work, these so-called colectivos, territorial militias, Colombian guerrillas, ELN. I mean, the list is endless. And that's why I think we need to, we need to quickly devise a plan and a strategy to address those security threats uh, before they have a chance to neuter any new government or transition government in Venezuela. What would a plan look like? I think a plan starts with prioritizing the threat. Most of these threats exist today and are ignored by the government. So it's not like all of these threats have to be addressed at the same time. So prioritization of the threat is number one. And I said number two is is a, a good security system. Right now, I don't think we could say that uh, about Venezuela. You'd need to train or retrain security services. You'd also have to give them new capabilities and you'd... Um, you would benefit from using lessons learned that we've had in the region from past examples like this. I think that's where you could get a multilateral approach in Venezuela. Several countries could come in with their expertise or best practices, partner up with Venezuelan counterparts, and accelerate their move into a a more modern, uh, responsible, and democratic security service that could address this uh, list of uh, security challenges. Is Plan Colombia a model? I think vast aspects of Plan Colombia could be a model. And the way to uh, adapt. So, so, so Plan Columbia was just for our listeners. Oh, yes. It was a partnership between the United States and, and Colombia, a partnership of effort, of resources to address a whole litany of security and other issues that were threatening Colombia's security and help Colombia recover from everything from drug violence and guerrillas and to do so in a methodical strategy based fashion. A Plan Colombia in an amended form for Venezuela would be a- a- actually a-, a fantastic idea. And if nothing else, we do need a strategy. But it would almost need to be, right, a, a-, a Plan Colombia on steroids, given 
the significance and the degree of the problems in Venezuela, wouldn't it? It would, and the amount of money we're talking about is daunting, I think, and it would have to rely on more than the United States, a number of countries to come forward and participate and invest in a plan Colombia. There are a lot of scary numbers out there on how much money would be needed to help Venezuela recover. It's in the billions, some say 80 billion, 85 billion. I think that number is probably a little low. And I also think that if you look at the numbers on how to rebuild Venezuela's oil industry, which the Venezuela, a new Venezuelan government would require to help fund its recovery, then that also tends to be some scary number in the billions and also a, a long timeline. Folk who are experts in the oil industry tell me that it could take up to 10 years. My fear is that once Maduro is gone, the international community will say, we won, it's time to move on, and that there is not a focus on the day after. That's my concern. Do you share that? Uh, Michael, you've hit the nail on the head. First, if, you're, if your measure of success is Maduro's departure, that alone doesn't necessarily mean that there'll be a significant change in the, in the uh, regime or even how business is conducted in Venezuela. It might not even mean anything in terms of moving the needle on redemocratization. And quite frankly, Maduro is a figure who, uh, as I said earlier, is not an individual who's particularly a strong leader or has a strong following. He simply represents the party. So someone else could step in and be worse than Maduro. So I know you're not in, in government anymore, but do you have a sense to what extent there are discussions going on about day after, not only in our government, but between our government and other governments? Is this something that people are actually focused on? I haven't been in government in these discussions recently, but I do know from various fora, mostly think tanks that have taken this on, who have invited both foreign governments and members of this administration to sit down and talk about day after scenarios. I know that at that level, some discussions have taken place. I'm comforted by the thought of some really serious countries having deep thoughts and conversations on this issue. The, the Netherlands comes to mind, believe it or not. You have to remember that they have their, the Netherlands has territory in the Caribbean just north of um, Venezuela in the form of Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao. Uh, so they have some interests. And then, of course, places out that you wouldn't normally associate with something like this. The Japanese have had very serious considerations, the South Koreans, the Taiwanese. Just, you know, it gives you just a snapshot on some of the countries that you wouldn't immediately think of who have had some deep thought about uh, day-after contributions of Venezuela. And and given the enormity of the challenge of a recovery of Venezuela, we'll need every single count, uh, country we can count on. So, Juan, just a couple more questions on Venezuela, and then I want to ask you a question about Colombia. On Venezuela, though, I don't hear senior administration officials, Trump administration officials, talking about Venezuela as much as they used to talk about it. And I'm wondering if it's still a priority it was at the beginning of the administration or whether it's slipped a bit, either because there's a lot of other pressing stuff out there from Iran to North Korea to China, et cetera, or because this is really hard and making progress on this is really hard and people have kind of moved on. Is what, What's your sense on that? I. You know, 30 April was a significant. A number of 
the top advisors on these issues uh, had their fingers singed on that uh, failure on 30 April. The president was supremely unhappy on how it turned out on the developments that day. I think that he, he probably put a lot more optimism into the outcome. And so when it didn't happen that way, um, folk had to take a step back. Part of the silence is probably due to regrouping, taking a quick inventory of wh- where we are and what still can be done. And also it gives everybody a chance to take a deep breath. You'll read in the press that the president is uh, maybe losing interest in Venezuela. I, I personally don't believe it. I think that much like everyone else, he's trying to take an inventory on where, on where we are on this thing and, wh- and what our options are moving forward. Uh, Maduro's proven a lot more resilient than anybody expected. And I think this is one of those opportunities where the president just wants to make sure the next time he, stick his neck, he sticks his neck out, it's, uh, it's going to have the kind of ending that he would, uh, that he would prefer. So what's the two questions here? What's the best outcome that you think we can hope for in the short to medium term here? And then what's the what's the worst outcome that you fear? The best outcome would be something akin to what 30 April had in mind. The future of Venezuela will be one where Everyone will have to be a participant, whether you're a Chavista or whether you're in the opposition. It's something where we're going to have to forgive some sins, where there will be people sitting around the table negotiating who perhaps are, are not the folk that you would want there. But in the best interest of peace and a resolution in Venezuela, you'll have to permit them to express themselves. And at the end of this, there'll be some sort of government that, in, in cooperation, in transition, governs jointly for a period of, let's say, 9 to 12 months with the objective of moving this into a fair, free, uh, monitorable election where you give an opportunity for democracy to help make choices in Venezuela. That would be sort of, the, I, I think, the best, best case scenario. And worst case scenario is um, status quo because what you have in Venezuela is an economic uh, vortex, right? I don't think anybody sits around the table and believes that Things are going to get better in Venezuela. It's not a bet you want to make. And between the sanctions of the international community and the in- incompetence of the regime and uh, poor economic policy, it's, it's a bad economic system, I think that pretty soon you'll see a bad situation get even worse. And if for some reason the international community can't coax the regime into doing the right thing, I think that uh, what we'll have is the regime just holding on uh, indefinitely. And then, unfortunately, Venezuela is a, a domestic and electoral issue for the U.S. as well. And so as we roll into some pretty critical dates at the beginning of 2020, I think it'll be harder and harder for um, the administration to do something really seminal on Venezuela. And by the way, conditions will change also with Juan Guaido. He's only president of this National Assembly because there's an agreement among the opposition parties to rotate that position. He'll be rotating out of that, which will When's be significant. Uh, I believe it'll be in December, January timeframe as well. It coincides with some other timelines. And uh, do, you, do you think there's a risk of a bloodbath in Venezuela that the guns might be turned on the protesters in a significant way? Or do you not worry about that? I do worry about it. Um, I worry about it from the point of view more of um, generalized civil unrest. What happens if you don't actually get a coup, but you get armed factions within the military or the security services turning weapons on each other. 
and that not necessarily, you know, getting some sort of standoff where the population gets gets cut uh, between the those who hold the weapons. I, I, to me, that's one of this kind of um, just short of a civil war, but some kind of civil unrest is, is a scenario that keeps me awake at night. It's also the case of where if they did turn the, their weapons on on the population, on the average Venezuelan citizen, we have to think of a, of a Rwanda-style catastrophe and what, we're, what we and the world community would be prepared to do about it. So this difference between best outcome, which is a transitional government, begins to try to solve some of Venezuela's problems, get back to democracy and the status quo, do you think that turns on what the international community does, that internally there's nothing to break the logjam and it's going to take something from the outside? I think it would have to take something from the outside, but it would have to work in conjunction with with something happening inside the country. So right now, Maduro can stay in power because he's able to pay off a number of factions, whether these are corrupt members of the military and security services or of his own civilian government. But if you had a number of, of factors come into play all at once, for example, gasoline shortages and people demonstrating about that, a return to the serious blackouts in the country and huge demonstrations and an inability to pay off, you know, corrupt officials. I think all those factors coming together could be the kind of catalyst that makes for a change inside the country and and allows for international foreign actors to assist them. So Juan, let me just, just finish up here by asking you about the situation in Colombia. And I'm wondering if you're concerned or not. It seems that the peace plan is beginning to unravel a bit. Cocaine production is on the rise again. Are you are you concerned about what's going on in Colombia and is there any link to the situation in Venezuela? Unfortunately the situation in Colombia has gotten a little messy. And it'll be hard for the the government to uphold its commitments in the uh, for the accords. But it's made worse by the fact that you have just alarming rates of coca production and, of course, consequent cocaine production. Something like that makes it harder for the government to respond. Some of these things are t- some of these conditions are taking place in areas where the FARC is dominated, or you have recidivism by f- uh, members of the FARC. Or you have FARC members who are dissidents and never agreed, uh, or rather never complied with the agreements. So those kind of conditions make it tougher for the president, now President Duque of Colombia, to uh, to respond to the needs of the country. And then if you superimpose on that, as we discussed earlier, just 1.8 million Venezuelans and the needs of those people, then I think it makes for a pretty hard country to govern and conditions to be um, to be met. Juan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Michael. That was Juan Cruz. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. 
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.